there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In 1986, some of the world's most renowned archaeologists gathered for a conference in London, England. As they mingled over coffee and pastries on the first morning, they speculated about the discoveries they were sure to make. The focus of the conference was the rebirth of towns in the West from 700 to 1050 CE. And for one week, the archaeologists studied artifacts from medieval German villages to learn more about the little understood time. What they found after analyzing soil samples from Frankfurt was remarkable. But it's what they didn't find that changed their expectations entirely. They failed to excavate anything from 650 to 910 CE. Which means that perhaps those 300 years never happened at all. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Paracast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the Phantom Dark Ages. This is the belief, originally advanced by Harry Bert Elick, that roughly 300 years of medieval history were wholly invented. And in reality, we're all living in the year 1723. Last week, we took a tour through the early Middle Ages and examined what life was like after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. We analyzed the life of Charlemagne and the rule of Holy Roman Emperor Otto III. Allegedly, Otto III jumped the clock ahead 297 years, creating a phantom Dark Age. Then he invented Charlemagne to help cover it up. This week, we're discussing the conspiracy theory that those years were skipped so Emperor Otto could rule at the dawn of the new millennium rather than the 7th century. To evaluate this theory, we'll explore the absence of archaeological evidence from 614 to 911 CE. We'll also look at inconsistencies in architecture that suggest the Dark Ages never happened. 
Then we'll examine Elix's hypothesis that the legendary figure known as Charlemagne, as well as the entire Carolingian dynasty, were fabricated by Otto III. Charlemagne was fabricated as a Christ-like figure from whom Otto III descended so that he could be recognized as a hero by association. Finally, we'll determine whether scientific tests like carbon dating or tree ring analysis are capable of proving Elix's claims. And we'll try to answer the core question, are we still living in the 1700s? The Gregorian calendar is the most widely used calendar today. But in the late 1980s, systems analyst and historical revisionist Heribert Ehrlich discovered that it may have contained a critical error. He traced his thinking back to 1582 CE, when Pope Gregory XIII noticed that the Julian calendar didn't align with astronomical events like the vernal equinox. He realized that it was slow by 11 minutes per year, so he subtracted 10 days from that year in order to correct the discrepancy. But the Pope's math was off. He should have been removing 13 days instead. Of course, those three extra days would have been unnecessary 300 years earlier if he'd made his adjustments in year 1282 CE, not 1582. Elick believed that the Pope may have been reconfiguring the calendar to cover something up. Something that had happened centuries ago and that the church was still compensating for hundreds of years later. That conspiracy? Unknown parties had jumped the clock forward 300 years. Someone had to fix the calendar and cover up this leap, and Elick thought Pope Gregory had been the one to finally do it. It's not clear exactly why Elich made this assumption, but we know that he began to compare the Julian and Gregorian calendar to see what era seemed the most superfluous. He started ruling out periods with an abundance of recorded evidence, like the final days of the Roman Empire, which lasted until around 600 CE, or the Renaissance from 1300 to 1600 CE. Well, this left one particular stretch of time that seemed awfully dark. Which led Elig to believe that there simply wasn't enough archaeological evidence to definitively say that the early Middle Ages ever happened. Most historical records from the Eastern and Western Roman empires were fairly detailed until 610 CE. But after that, they seemed to vanish into thin air for three centuries. Not only did Elich notice a discrepancy in documentation, but he also observed a bizarre lack of architectural development in those same 300 years. The Romanesque architecture of 476 CE was nearly identical to that of 1000 CE. To put things into perspective, it would be the equivalent of seeing colonial homes with thatch roofs being built in America today. Sure, trends recirculate and come back into fashion. I'm sure we've all got a pair of bell-bottoms hidden in our closet. But it wasn't just the Romanesque architecture that raised a red flag. Elick claimed that there were hardly any new architectural developments during this time. Technological advancements were slower in the Middle Ages, but 300 years is a lot of time to remain stagnant. 
Emmett Scott, author of Guide to the Phantom Dark Age, agrees with Elick's argument. He offered examples like Canterbury Cathedral in Roman Britain, which was built in 597 CE, then renovated in the year 1070 CE. He claimed that during those 500 years, the building was untouched with no restorations, developments, or additions. Castles shared a similar problem. Elick found several that were built before the early 600s and many constructed after the 10th and 11th centuries. But if any castles were built during the Dark Ages, there's no longer any trace they existed. Elick states in his paper, Anomalous Eras, Best Evidence, Best Theory, that some unnamed sources had listed around 1,695 structures built between the years 476 and 817 CE. But Elick claims that he found that more than 97% of them had completely vanished, assuming they'd even existed in the first place. Apparently, the list was entirely falsified. But it wasn't just architecture that seemed to disappear for those 300 years. There's also a lack of artifacts or human remains. Historical researcher Dr. Hans Ulrich Niemitz illustrated the issue in his 1995 paper, Did the Early Middle Ages Really Exist? Niemitz mentioned that during the 1986 archaeological conference in London, researchers found some gaps in the statigraphy of medieval towns. Statigraphy is the analysis of the sedimentary layers at an archaeological site. Generally, the lower layers of soil are older than anything above. By looking at how deep an artifact is buried, archaeologists can determine which pieces are older or newer when they're unearthed. Using a series of dating techniques, they can then find the age of the artifacts found in each layer. But at the 1986 conference, there was little evidence from these German towns that dated back to the Middle Ages. Specifically in Frankfurt, where excavators were unable to find any materials that dated between the years 650 and 910 CE. But interestingly, Niemitz's research was extremely limited in scope. Aside from Frankfurt, he didn't go into detail on any other European towns. And the fact of the matter is there are some relics that can be traced to the supposed Phantom Dark Ages. But many records appear to be highly contradictory to one another. Take, for example, the Council of Toledo in the 7th century. These documents set the legal and moral standard for how the Jewish population should be treated. But the laws were ahead of their time. They provided protections for a population that hadn't suffered any documented widespread discrimination yet. But by the 13th century, the regulations felt a lot more relevant as anti-Semitic discrimination became more prevalent. Elick and Niemitz's argument was that many of these records were written retroactively, a.k.a. they were forgeries. Some documents from the era are widely known to be forged, and the Council of Toledo may well be one of them. But if so, when were these alleged forgeries made? During the Dark Ages or afterward to shore up a falsified calendar? After careful analysis, Elick believed they had to have been made after the birth of Otto III. 
In fact, the window of opportunity was somewhere between the years 990 and 1009 CE, and Elich recognized that three of the world's most powerful people had to have been involved in order to pull off this stunt. Those men? Pope Sylvester II, Otto III, and Constantine VII. The problem was that Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII supposedly died in the year 959, 21 years before the birth of Otto III. So it's impossible that he could have been involved in the conspiracy. But if there's one thing we know about Otto III, it's that he was ambitious. He didn't need Constantine's assistance to pull off such a stunt. In fact, he had all the collaboration he needed in the form of an ancestor he allegedly invented solely for this conspiracy. Emperor Charlemagne, who, according to Elech, never existed at all. Coming up, we'll determine whether the great Charlemagne was merely a fictional character. Now back to the story. According to Heribert Elich, the years 614 to 911 CE never happened. The period has a lack of documentation, lack of archaeological evidence, and lack of technological advancement. What records do exist may have been forged, possibly by Otto III. This cover-up would have been a massive undertaking, including the creation of an entire historic political dynasty. Which leads us to the Aachen Cathedral in West Germany. As you'll remember from part one, Otto III journeyed to Aachen Cathedral in the year 1000. He allegedly uncovered the tomb of his hero, Charlemagne, who'd been one of the architects and supervisors when the chapel began construction in 790 CE. Or was he? There are many elements to the narrative that feel a bit difficult to believe. And then there's the cathedral itself, which features several architectural anomalies. Take its stone dome. It's nearly 100 feet tall, 50 feet in diameter, and weighs more than a ton. It would take a truly skilled architect to design and assemble such a thing in the 9th century. Elich found the techniques oddly advanced for the supposed time period it was built. Frankish builders typically used wood in their construction. They might have picked up building techniques from the Romans, but they used concrete for their dome structures, not stone. And in the Byzantine Empire, domes were constructed using only tiles or clay. To Elich, it seemed as though the Aachen Palatine Chapel was the very first of its kind. He wondered how builders from the Carolingian Empire might have been able to create something this perfect without ever studying a predecessor. But not only that, there were simply no other Carolingian buildings built with that kind of structural integrity or a stone dome until centuries after the year 820 CE. It was as if the technology had come and gone in the blink of an eye. And it wasn't only the design of the dome that seemed to have disappeared for centuries before it would finally make a return. Dr. Hans Ulrich Niemitz points out that the chapel's arched aisles weren't seen in architecture again until the 12th century, when they finally reappeared in Spire, Germany. 
Design elements like the shape of the vaulted roofs also seem to fall off the grid until they return to the structures in Toulouse, France at the turn of the millennium. Elik and Nemitz were completely befuddled. The structure, as they put it, didn't have a predecessor nor a successor. It seemed to stand completely isolated in time. Professor Jan van der Merle believed that the dome was constructed either before 650 CE or around the Ottonian period in 918 to 1024 CE. In short, the dome in Aachen Cathedral wasn't Carolingian. It was most likely either Gallo-Roman or Ottonian. This would be easy to confirm or disprove if archaeologists could uncover blueprints or construction materials and date them to a particular era. But the city of Aachen, capital of the Carolingian Empire, has never received a proper archaeological dig. Elick noted that besides the Aachen Cathedral, nothing seems to have been preserved from the era. No streets, homes, or small artifacts. And maybe no Charlemagne. Nemitz believed that Otto III may have created the emperor in his own image, or at least what he hoped his image was. He could then claim to descend from a righteous, accomplished, brilliant ruler, beloved by humanity and God alike. Elik found plenty of problems with the historical representation of the first Holy Roman Emperor, Charlemagne. For starters, Far too many achievements were ascribed to this singular man. He was an architect, an astronomer, an agriculturalist. 44 of his 46 years on the throne were supposedly spent in battle. He traveled far enough to equal more than two trips around the globe. And during this time, he ignited education reform, introduced a jury system, updated the written scripture, and created over a hundred different new laws. Elik believed that Charlemagne would have needed to live the lives of three, four, or maybe five men to have achieved everything history books claim. Which was how he came to his next argument. Charlemagne's life wasn't long enough to have accomplished everything that had been written about him. Therefore, he must have been made up. And Otto III had plenty of motive to create an elaborate resume for his ancestral Charlemagne. Since the Ottonian Empire descended from Germanic princes who'd manipulated their way into the Holy Roman Empiric title, they needed to give themselves a backstory, something to legitimize themselves. The story of Charlemagne helped to prop up the Ottonian Empire and painted them as heroes simply by association. But if Charlemagne and consequently those 297 years were completely fabricated, Otto III needed the rest of the world to corroborate the lie. And according to the theory, he succeeded. Elix suggested that the fast-forward wasn't limited to the Ottonian Empire. In fact, he believed that Islamic record-keepers added a great many events to their history in support of their own phantom time period, which is why the Byzantines, Christians, and Jews all introduced new calendars around the same time in the 10th century CE. All for the sake of one holy Roman emperor's fame and glory. 
So, is it possible that Charlemagne and the Carolingian dynasty could have actually been fictionalized? Well, it's almost impossible to say for sure. Any record of the time could have been forged. It's hard to know which historians to trust. But the answer may lie in modern science, at least modern compared to Otto's time. In the mid-1920s, astronomer Andrew Ellicott Douglas and anthropologist Clark Vissler discovered a groundbreaking method to date any wooden object. They hoped this technique would one day help historians place archaeological evidence in its correct period. The technique, known as dendrochronology, is based on counting the rings on a piece of wood. If the object is preserved properly, then researchers should be able to use this ring count to determine what year, sometimes down to the season, that the tree was cut. Since trees grow in girth as well as height, the trunk acquires a new ring each year of its life. A thinner ring signifies that the year was colder than average, while a thicker ring shows that the year was warmer. After obtaining a sample, scientists can compare the tree ring patterns to the Intical 04 database, which contains ancient records, remains, and climate data dating back 26,000 years. When a match is found, a date and region can be assigned to the object. For example, in 2014, a tree ring analysis was done on an old oil painting with wooden panels from an art museum in Helsinki. Researchers were able to run detailed photos of the panels through their database. The results showed that the wood had the same pattern as a timber import that came through the eastern Baltic Sea to Western Europe sometime between 1413 and 1620 CE. Dendrochronology is widely accepted as accurate, but it does have some drawbacks. Scientists weren't able to narrow down a specific date for the oil painting's panels, just a 200-year range, which is too broad for some analyses. For better results, researchers might turn to radiocarbon testing, which was developed in 1946 by Professor Willard Libby at the University of Chicago. He discovered that all living organisms, including humans, absorb radioactive carbon from the atmosphere. But once an organism dies, that absorption stops. The remaining carbon slowly escapes the body until there is nothing left. Since the carbon is emitted at a slow, fixed rate, we are then able to estimate its age based on how much remains. The less carbon in a sample, the older it is. You may have heard of it as carbon dating. But Nimitz and Elik had publicly questioned the legitimacy of these dating methods. Well, they noted that, like dendrochronology, radiocarbon dating isn't always precise. The margin of error was too wide to accurately determine whether or not any piece of evidence fell into their 297-year window. Emmett Scott, historian and researcher, specifically argues against the radiocarbon method in his book, A Guide to the Phantom Dark Age. He explains that environmental factors can skew results. Things like waterlogging could cause a sample to appear older or younger than it actually was. It could even remove radioactive carbons from a sample entirely, making this method of dating inaccurate. And even if a scientist were to conduct these tests anyway, Elik and Nemitz 
felt that there wasn't enough evidence to test. So even if the test did work, they would be pointless. In fact, Nemitz noted that there were only four suitable samples of Dark Ages wood that could have gone out for dendrochronologic or radiocarbon testing, and 50 samples are generally required to ensure faulty tests haven't skewed the results. It seems a bit convenient that Elick and Nemitz would have so many objections to these kinds of scientific analysis. You'd think they'd want to show that certain relics are younger than they're believed to be. Well, there's still one more scientific experiment that could put the legitimacy of Elick and Nemitz's claim to the test. Solar measurement. Today, modern astronomers are able to retroactively calculate exactly where and when a solar eclipse may have happened, as long as it occurred in the past 1,000 years. And since a solar eclipse is such a spectacular event, often believed to be supernatural, their appearances in history are well documented, as are other celestial occasions like the passage of comets. So, if 300 years of our history were made up, then the documented sightings that allegedly occurred during those 300 years would be incongruous with our timeline. That is, if there were documented sightings at the time. As it turns out, there were. Halley's Comet, more commonly known as Halley's Comet, passes by Earth every 76 years. The last time it made an appearance was in 1986, and it is set to return in 2061. One of the first people to ever describe the comet was none other than Emperor Louis the Pious, the son of Charlemagne, and he reported it in 837 CE, a year that Elick considered to be a phantom year. Louis's records indicate that he actually feared the comet, he believed it was an omen from the gods, a sign that his reign would come to an end. He even tried to ward off the celestial presence with prayer, fasting, and gifts for the poor. According to calculations by astronomers Donald Yeomans and Tao Qiang, the 837 CE appearance of Halley's Comet was one of the closest approaches it has ever made to Earth. The comet was a mere 3.7 million miles away, that may seem like an immense distance, but for context, when it appeared in 1986, the closest the comet ever got was 39 million miles away, more than 10 times as far. Which is to say, its appearance in 837 was an extravagant sight, entirely unmistakable. Which meant Louis the Pious wasn't the only one to take note. In China, the comet was nicknamed the Broom Star. Yeomans and Kiang found extensive documents from the East that indicated the comet likely appeared on the night of April 9th, which perfectly lined up with records kept in the West. These records of Halley's Comet seem to support the idea that the Dark Ages really did happen. Or Otto III falsified this history along with everything else. Well, no matter how powerful he was, he couldn't change the movement of the heavens but he might have had his scribes lie about them. It seems we can't rely on the historical record to weigh the merits of the Phantom Dark Ages conspiracy theory. But for a definitive answer, 
we might look to a shocking discovery made 1,000 years after Charlemagne's death, a discovery that might settle everything. Coming up, we'll examine all the evidence so far and see if we can solve the Phantom Dark Ages hypothesis. Now back to the story. In 1986, Heribert Elick and Hans Ulrich Niemitz proposed the Phantom Dark Ages hypothesis. It relies on a lack of architectural development between 600 and 1000 CE, a fictional Charlemagne, and faults in tree ring and carbon dating. Let's start at the top of Elick's argument and the problem he had with the Gregorian calendar. Pope Gregory XIII adjusted it by 10 days, when he should have moved it forward 13. The error suggested Gregory left 300 years out of his calculations. Elix's math was correct, but he didn't have all of the information. Because historians found that Pope Gregory XIII's 10-day change wasn't calculated off the start of the Julian calendar in 45 BCE. Instead, the Pope attempted to bring the calendar back into sync with Easter, which had been moved by the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE, 1,257 years before the switch. So Pope Gregory's 10-day discrepancy made sense. It seems he wasn't trying to cover up for 297 years of missing time. He was simply calculating off a different starting date. So what does all this mean for Harry Barrett Elick's Phantom Dark Age? As we know, Elick had other reasons to believe the Pope was covering up something larger. Let's start with Elick's argument that there is simply not enough surviving evidence from the period of 614 to 911 CE to support that these years existed. But there is a reason that the period was nicknamed the Dark Ages. After the fall of Rome, plenty of social and political structures collapsed with it, leaving about 95% of the population impoverished, uneducated, and illiterate. People were too busy trying to feed themselves and satisfy their basic needs to worry about creativity or culture. In addition, papyrus from Egypt was hard to come by, even for those who could keep written records. According to Belgian historian Henri Piren, the trade of many luxury items ended after the fall of Rome. Papyrus was unfortunately considered one of these luxury items, so few events made it into the written record. And Elick didn't seem to have been thorough in his research, because there are, in fact, plenty of medieval artifacts recovered from this period of time. There's Anglo-Saxon metalwork that dates to the 8th and 9th centuries, as well as the Lindisfarne Gospels, an illustrated manuscript filled with colorful artwork dating to 715 CE. And that's just to name a few. Then there's the question of architecture from this era, including medieval castles. There were simply none constructed during those phantom dark years. But keep in mind that this was a time when the Western Roman Empire fell and the church was gaining most of the money and power. And as a result, plenty of religious churches were built while secular castles took a back seat till the turn of the millennium. 
The Chapel of St. Peter on the Wall was built in Essex in 660 CE. The Great Basilica Pliska in Bulgaria around 866 CE and Hildesheim Cathedral in Germany in 872 CE. And as for Emmett Scott's example of the Canterbury Cathedral, he failed to mention that Archbishop Cuthbert was said to have added a mausoleum and baptistry to the Canterbury Cathedral in 750 CE, meaning that there was activity during this time. The cathedral then suffered from a fire in 1067 CE, requiring it to be rebuilt. But that still doesn't fully solve the problem with the Aachen Cathedral. The structure was an anomaly, completely isolated in time. Even scholars like Professor Jan van der Merle, who rejected the conspiracy, believed it might have been built during the Ottonian Empire. Sure, the cathedral had some unique properties that were uncommon at the time, but it's hardly an indicator that it had to have been built centuries later. All good ideas need to come from somewhere. It's possible that the cathedral had one gifted architect working alongside Charlemagne, a genius who died before he could make another masterpiece. And if the Carolingian dynasty fell with Charlemagne, it's likely that many of the innovations to come out of his renaissance disappeared as well. Well, that includes knowledge of how the Aachen Cathedral was designed and built. Likewise, there's absolutely no record of any collaboration between Otto III, Pope Sylvester, and Constantine. Sure, it was supposed to be secret, but Constantine was long dead at the time of the alleged meeting. Unless he attended in spectral form, there's no way Otto and Sylvester met Constantine privately, publicly, or at any point in their lives. That leaves us with the question of whether the Carolingians or Charlemagne lived during the Middle Ages or even existed at all. We have some pretty compelling evidence for both. In 1988, a team of German researchers uncovered the remains of a skeleton in Aachen Cathedral. Well, they suspected that these may have been the same bones that, according to legend, Otto III had discovered on his journey into Charlemagne's tomb in 1000 CE. 94 bones were recovered from a sarcophagus and analyzed to try and identify their owner. In 2014, the team reached their conclusion. The skeleton was a six-foot-tall man weighing around 171 pounds. The length of the thigh, shin, and arm bones confirmed that his build was similar to Charlemagne's. They also found that the kneecap and heel bone showed deposits hinting at an injury. Charlemagne was known to have developed a limp around the age of 68. Based on all this, they concluded that these may indeed be the bones of the legendary Charlemagne. And ironically, Elick has since modified his position on Charlemagne, claiming that perhaps he did exist, just not when he was initially thought to have. That feels like a safe way to protect his theory in an effort to keep it afloat. But it's all toppling down for me, especially when we get to the issue of dendrochronology and radiocarbon dating. Elick and Niemitz never even attempted to apply these methods to medieval-era artifacts. Which makes the whole allegation all the more suspicious. 
Were they afraid of being proven wrong and leaving the spotlight with their tails between their legs? I think so. If they were so certain that the 300-year period didn't exist, they would certainly use concrete technologies that could help them do that. We have to acknowledge how far-fetched the entire conspiracy theory is. The cover-up would have stretched through all of Europe in an era of extremely limited long-distance communication. And the truth is, there's an abundance of documents that historians know existed during the Dark Ages. They chronicle that 297-year period in pretty extensive detail. And we've proven they are consistent with one another. For instance, one Anglo-Saxon chronicle documented the visit of their king to France during these phantom years. This information was corroborated with French histories from that same year. Meaning, if this information were falsified, both regions would have had to participate in the lie. Finally, the Phantom Dark Ages hypothesis would require not only the cooperation and collaboration of the leaders of the Ottonian Empire, but also every other global power. Take the history of the Middle East. If it were fabricated, this would suggest that the Prophet Muhammad and the entire rise of Islam around 600 to 700 CE would therefore also have been fabricated. Or the Tang Dynasty, who fought against the Islamic Empire's Abbasid Caliphate in 751 CE, when the Arabic forces beat the Tang Dynasty at the Battle of Talis, they took many Chinese prisoners as slaves. And once again, dated documents of this battle can be found in both Islamic and Chinese historical records, which means Elix theory would have had to extend all the way to China, requiring they too conspired with the Atonians. So where or when does Elix suggest that those meetings took place? Elik and Nemitz don't have an answer for that. Not to mention, that would be a big concession for the Chinese to make just to corroborate a teenage emperor's self-serving plan. Unfortunately, as far as Elik and Nemitz are concerned, the best evidence to support their theory was the fact that there simply wasn't much evidence at all. And since Elik seems to have misinterpreted the motivations behind Pope Gregory's calendar reform, I think it's safe to say that the entire theory is rooted in false information. All that being said, it's time to determine how plausible we find the Phantom Dark Ages theory. We're ranking it on a score of 1 to 10, with 1 being the least plausible and a 10 being the most. Well, this theory gets a weak 2 out of 10. The only part that feels grounded in reality is Elix's allegations that the church and the empire forged some documents to serve their own interests. There were periods in history where information couldn't be transcribed, and those stories were told by word of mouth for centuries before finally hitting the page. So is history distorted? Undoubtedly so. But that's hardly evidence of 300 years of phantom time. We feel pretty certain that we are, in fact, living in the year 2020 CE. So go ahead, take a deep breath. Until Elik comes up with some concrete proof, there's no reason to set your calendars back to the year of 1723. And don't worry about the millennium bug or the Mayan apocalypse. We haven't reached the end of the world at least. 
not yet. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 